right today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, your host. And as always, I'm really glad you've decided to join us. You can spend a lot of time right now thinking about what's happening in our economy, both locally and globally, and not come up with really great or satisfying answers. A shift in trade agreements and other economic policies has created a flood of cheaper consumer goods that make all kinds of things more accessible to people. Televisions and game systems, clothing and food. But at the same time, the prices of some crucial things we can't do without, healthcare, education, housing, they're all going up significantly. There is unrecognizable prosperity at the top of the economic scale, for instance, more billionaires than ever here in the United States. But your average family struggles with things like debt and stagnant wages and the uncertainty that always looms from possible economic collapse. These tensions are some of the reasons that we've seen real economic populism take over the political extremes. Think about it. Backlash to our globalized economy helps explain some of Donald Trump's popularity on the right, but it also helps explain the rise of figures like Bernie Sanders and the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. And to an extent, that anxiety about the overall shape of the economy, the trajectory of it, has propelled some of the support for President Biden's most successful legislation, the CHIPS Act, the Inflation Reduction Act, the infrastructure law, the debate over Build Back Better. All of this legislation is trying to speed up production at home, shore up supply chains, and give people good jobs locally. It is trying to reorder, in some ways, the economy to work better for more people. But is this change a lasting one? Is it a really substantive change? Or is it just about the time we're in? I think it's reasonable to wonder whether we are on the verge of a new and different kind of economic era, or whether people are just kind of panicking. Rana Faruar is a global business columnist and an associate editor at the Financial Times. And she's been spending a lot of time thinking about those kind of questions. In her most recent book, Homecoming, The Path to Prosperity in a Post-Global World, she describes how our global economy has taken shape, the hurt it has caused, and the path toward something better. How does our global economy operate? What kinds of things has it given us and what has it taken from us? And are our politics shifting away from this system and toward something else, something maybe more local and communally relevant, as Faruar suggests? I'm really pleased to welcome Rana Faruar to Detroit today to discuss all of this. It's great to have you here on the program. Oh, thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. So you write that instead of a world economy in service to domestic policies and the overall welfare of people within a broad range of nation states, 
We've gotten a world economy in service to itself. Explain what that means and explain the globalized economic deal that we bet on and how it plays out for us. Yeah, so big questions and um, important questions. Um, it's It's been about a half a century now that we have um, lived a certain kind of globalization. Um, I would call it a neoliberal idea of globalization. And what I mean by that when I say that word neoliberal, which gets tossed around a lot, is um, what the IMF means when it says it, which is the idea that money, goods, and people should be able to flow easily across borders and land wherever it is best for them to do so. Um, and the idea is that this is going to lift all boats. It's going to create prosperity for all. Um, the world is flat, you know, to quote the the Tom Friedman book that was written really at the apex of uh, this last period of globalization, right before the, the great financial crisis. But there was a catch. There was a catch in that theory. And the catch was that money, capital, and capitalists <laughs> always traveled faster and further than either goods or people, meaning labor. So you could get um, a big multinational company, a handful of multinational companies putting um, profits and jobs and intellectual property wherever they wanted around the world. But you didn't see labor having those same opportunities to leverage um, talent, location, um, sort of optimize, maximize. So, so what happened over the last four or five decades is you got a handful of multinational companies and the people that run them um, and the financial institutions that support them sort of increasingly flying over the concerns of the nation states and the voters and the workers that live in them. And that's why, to my mind, you started to have populism, not only in the US, but in many parts of the developed world, in Europe and parts of Asia, because you got um, a group of people, voters, you know, on the ground saying, wait a minute, are the trade deals being cut? Are the financial deregulations that are happening? Are the economic policies that the people leading my country, are they being made in my interest or are they being made to support a global economy the wealth from which I'm not really feeling, I'm not reaping that. And just to kind of give you a statistic to back that up, in the last half century, globalization has created more wealth than ever before at a global level, but within almost every country, inequality has also radically increased. And that's because most of the gains have accrued to the small handful of people and companies at the top. And that to me is a problem because you start to get, as you were saying earlier, more extreme politics, both on the, the right and on the left. And fundamentally, you start to get um, a sense of cynicism about government, a sense of cynicism on the part of the population that, gosh, you know, are either parties really working in my interest? And I think that that's where we are right now. And I, and I think that um, I think things are changing and that they should change, but we have more to do. So talk about how that change then unfolds and takes place. As we both have observed, you've got these these sort of extreme um, iterations of, of frustration, political frustration, kind of propping up the far right and the, 
the 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 far left, um, and everyone else is kind of left to to try to govern, I guess, somewhere somewhere in the in the middle. But at, at the same time, you know, as I pointed out, you know, uh, President Biden has been successful at getting some pretty progressive um, and and change oriented legislation through things that really kind of reorder. Uh, the economy. So is it that there is this pressure coming from those extremes that forces those who are governing to do that? Or uh, I guess, is it that um, that the, the middle is is trying to, to sort of solve the problem uh, to avoid the, the noise and the anxiety and in some cases, the disruption of what we're seeing on the extremes? So great points. First of all, let me just say, I totally agree with you about President Biden. I think he has been the most supportive president for labor and for unions in this country that I can remember. I mean, this is a man who has a bust of Cesar Chavez in his office. You know? So he's, he's definitely doing the right thing by labor. You know, he, he was also a very close friend to someone that I interviewed for my book, um, who is now passed along, Richard Trumpka, who was the head of the sure. AFL-CIO. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm sure you've spoken to him Very many well times. Very well-known here in Michigan, of course. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, sure. Anyway, uh, Rich was, uh, I thought, a, just a lovely man, a very, very wise person. And I went to, just to give you a little sense of um, maybe in a more human scale, how I see these changes, I went to see him a few years back um, for an interview. And I wanted to understand what the conversation was in the 1990s and in the beginning of the 2000s when some of the big changes were happening on the global stage, the um, the NAFTA agreement coming through, the ascension of China in 2001 into the WTO. And I said, well, you know, how were you guys thinking about that? And, And what was the conversation with policymakers? And he told me the most amazing story. He said, Um, At that time, a policymaker from the Clinton administration had come to talk to him and Rich said, you know, some of these deals are going to really kill us. You know, how how is this going to play? How how should we be thinking about managing these changes for our members? And the policymaker said, well, yeah, we know it's going to it's going to hurt U.S. labor. Don't but don't worry. Everything's going to level out, you know, that that term leveling out, leveling up and wages are going to rise eventually globally. And then there's going to be sort of an even playing field all over the world. And in the meantime, you're going to get a lot of cheap stuff from Walmart. You know, the price of your TV is going to go down, all that. And Rich and Rich said, well, OK, but how long is this leveling out going to take? And the policymaker said with a straight face, three to five generations. Hmm. And that always just takes my breath away because it speaks to the way in which economists in particular, and these are the guys, they're mostly guys that are you know, in Washington making the policies that affect our lives. They're thinking about algorithms and, and hypothetical models. They are not thinking about the fact that when you decide to hollow out America's industrial base, you are gonna leave entire cities and towns and communities just DOA. And then you start to see the opioid crisis and deaths of despair and the folding up of small businesses and all of the things that many of us, and I grew up in the rural Midwest, my dad actually ran factories that supplied Detroit, um, you know, that we all saw. And that 
sense of broader second and third tier effects from these decisions and also the human implications were simply not considered well enough. Now, I think things are changing because if you look at the trade negotiations that are going down right now, uh, like IPEF, for example, which is the big uh, trade deal that the US is trying to cut in Asia to kind of provide some new partners there to compete with China, labor standards, environmental standards, very much in the conversation. Mm -hmm. Catherine Tai, who's the USTR, is absolutely cut from the same cloth as, uh, certainly as Rich Trumka, but but also as the former USTR, uh, Robert Lighthizer under Trump. You know, I think both sides are realizing, hey, the global economy is great. Yes, America needs to sell its products abroad, but we cannot sell out our own labor and our own industrial commons in that process, or we're all going to end up poorer. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we're talking with uh, Rana Farouar. She is a global business columnist and an associate editor at the Financial Times. And her most recent book is Homecoming, The Path to Prosperity in a Post-Global World. We're talking about the way that the global economy is changing as well as uh, the way domestic economic policy is changing. And uh, whether that signals uh, good news, I guess, for uh, folks who have really taken it on the chin for a long time uh, from globalism, uh, the, the, the things that uh, we thought would uh, raise wages and bring economic security, especially to working people, haven't really panned out. So are the things that we're doing now going to produce something really different? Uh, we want to hear from you as well during this conversation. What do you make of our economy in the wake of these new big pieces of legislation, for instance, that have been passed in the last two years, the CHIPS Act, the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, the Infrastructure Act, uh, the Build Back Better debate that uh, went on in Washington. Uh, President Biden wanted that legislation but couldn't get the votes. Uh, do you think the, three, the free market will continue to lead most of our thinking when we think about the economy? Or do you think the government will have a larger role in our lives? And do you think people here in the U.S. are ready to accept that larger role from government? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can work you into the conversation uh, that way. Uh, Rana, I, I want to talk about what, what makes you feel like this is a move away from uh, a free market-driven economy and the one that's more balanced between government and mm. the free market, but, but also whether you think that change is, uh, is lasting, uh, potentially yeah. lasting. I mean, that was kind of the question I was asking in the open is, are people just panicked and ready to kind of grasp at something that will make things a little better? Or are they really thinking that what we're doing just doesn't work and that we've got to go in a, you know, in a permanently different direction? So um, a really important question. Um, I think that this is a permanent change. And let me try and sketch out why I think that. Um, First of all, if you go back in history, economic pendulums swing, right? You know, um, theories, a theory of neoliberalism, for example, it works until it doesn't work. So you can go all the way back to the 18th century and look at, you know, mercantilism that worked for a period of time. And then after, you know, 100 years or so, the pendulum started swinging more towards laissez-faire economics. And then when that became too extreme, 
we went to Keynesianism and more government involvement. And then when that reached an apex, you know, in the modern period in the 70s, then you saw the Reagan-Thatcher revolution. And, um, you know, while I'm a very pro-labor Democrat, I, I could see that at that time, you probably did need some releasing of animal spirits um, and and to, to really kind of shake up business um, and release global capital. But then by the 90s and the 2000s, that pendulum starts to kind of swing too far again in the opposite direction where you have a, a system in this country, for example, where we've had so many changes that have incentivized the growth of Wall Street and kind of this saccharine um, uh, way of growing businesses, you know, pushing up stock prices, pushing down consumer prices. That's been our ethos for a half century. As long as share prices are up, as long as stuff is cheap in Walmart, everything's working fine. But the problem is, with the with the with the exception of the current period of I would still say modest wage inflation. I mean, you know, it always amazes me when I read the Wall Street Journal and I'm hearing, oh my God, wages are becoming um, so hot, they're entrenched. I'm like, wage in, wage growth is five yeah. percent. The the price of a carrying a mortgage year on year is up fifty five percent. So like, don't talk to me about how high wages are. Um, anyway. Uh, aside from this brief period, which has to do with change in Fed policy, most Americans have had flat wages since the early 1990s. Most working people have had them since the 1970s. So a an economy like America's that is based on 70% consumer spending, when nobody has more money in their pocket, the math stops working and people start taking on more and more debt. And then eventually the debt explodes and people are left taxpayers and individuals are left holding the bag as they were in the great financial crisis. So we have a system that is designed to incentivize both individuals and companies to take on lots of debt, um, to jack up share prices, to buy stuff on credit. And then when the music stops playing, as it is right now, it always ends in tears. And you can already see that, you know, just in the markets, the crash of of the British economy, the crash of crypto, all the things that were a little dicey are starting to go down. And consumers, even though their balance sheets are in better shape, I think people were afraid about the great financial crisis and they've done a better job of saving. People are starting to spend down their savings. And so what happens when nobody has um, more money in their pocket, or at least not a raise that keeps up with the average levels of inflation? You can't buy a home, you can't create wealth you start to get an economy that is just working only for the top 12% of the population that owns 85% of the stock. That is not sustainable politically. We can already see that. Now, there are also changes happen happening at the business level, and these go back a while. So I've been covering business now for 32 years, and I would say even 10 or 15 years ago, I started to see a lot of companies that were bringing you know, cheap stuff, shoes, lighting fixtures, furniture, textiles, um, in these long complicated supply chains from Asia, starting to kind of look at that calculus and say, gosh, you know, by the time we spend all the money on fuel, by the time we think about the carbon emissions that we, we may eventually be having to pay for, um, the problems with the labor still not being as productive there, does it really make sense to just go for the cheap, cheap, cheap 
send it abroad, outsource it to the cheapest labor location, or should we maybe be doing a little more regionalized or localized production? And so you've been seeing industries like furniture or textiles start to regionalize and come back closer to where consumers are. You add to that then the pandemic, which was just like a scrim that was kind of pulled up on all the vulnerabilities in the system. And suddenly you're like, oh, okay, we've been buying as a country three cent masks from China, which by the way, that's dumping because the raw materials are at least five or six cents. You know, um, and they're probably made by tiny little fingers in a forced labor camp in Xinjiang. You know, let's think about that from a moral point of view. But in any case, China decides, understandably from their perspective, in the middle of a pandemic, we'd like our masks back. So suddenly the U.S. has to figure out how to turn its 30 cent masks into a mass production item. Now, interestingly, we did that. And that's something I followed in my book. We have more capacity still in many parts of this country than we realize. And when government gets under the private sector and sets a floor, good things can happen. So I talked to a bunch of textile um, workers in in the Carolinas, actually. They weren't selling any t-shirts and they said, okay, can we help make masks? The federal government came came in, gave them some contracts and they were able to turn on a dime. And through the course of the pandemic, because of productivity and being able to work together in in sort of regional hubs, which I know folks in Detroit understand that model, these guys were able to drive down the price of an American-made mask from 30 cents to 10 cents. Now let's compare 10 cents to three cents. If you start to actually say, what are the raw materials in that mask? It goes up to six cents. Then if you start to tally in, maybe I don't wanna buy something made by child labor in a forced camp, then you know maybe the cost of a mask is actually 10 cents. And so now through the Buy America Act, we're starting to get a floor under some of those products. It's not perfect, there are loopholes, but we're beginning to see, okay, there are certain Um, items, be it PPE or pharmaceuticals or semiconductor chips that we need to make at home and that Europeans should make at home. We need a little more resiliency and redundancy because was it ever a good idea to have 92% of all high-end semiconductor chips made in Taiwan? Um, like, in one place, right. Yeah. In one place. Uh, Ron, I, I don't want to cut you off, but I do want to get to a break. we got to raise some money here on Giving Tuesday. Uh, this is such a great conversation. I can't wait to get back to it. Also can't wait to get our listeners involved at uh, 313-577-1019. You can join us and talk about globalization and the economy, how it's affecting you, how you see the changes maybe. Uh, taking place in places like Washington that might make things a little easier, a little better. Also go to Twitter and hashtag us uh, and we can include you that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Our guest today is Rana Faruhar. She is a global business columnist and an associate editor at the Financial Times. Her most recent book is Homecoming, The Path to Prosperity. 
in a post-global world. We're talking about uh, what globalization looks like and whether it is moving to a different kind of uh, era, uh, both globally and uh, locally. I want to hear from you as well about uh, how this economy is treating you. Do you find uh, ample opportunities to establish financial security, I think, is really the thing that uh, so many people are struggling with. Um, Is it easy to buy a house and uh, save money to send your kids to college and all of the things that, uh, that we think about uh, as pathways to economic stability. Uh, give us a call. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can include you that way. Let's start today with Martha. Uh, Martha, go Mar- ahead. Yes, good morning, Stephen, and to your guest as well. When when I was teaching high school three decades ago, I was sitting across the desk from my principal, and not all of my students were special ed students, but some of them were, and he was promoting that all of these factory-type jobs should happen in other countries where they can keep the pollution there, and we'll just have the products come to us. And I thought at the time... You know, I have some kids who aren't in competition to be CEO of any company. They were, when they graduate from high school, they'd at least like to make some kind of a secure living. Mm-hmm. And I didn't say that to him at the time because I knew I wasn't going to get through to him, I didn't think. And he had the power to hurt me worse than he already had. And where did the idea come that this should be? a country where we don't do basic, honest labor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I can, maybe your guest can. Sure. Martha, that. that's a, it's a great question. Mm-hmm. And uh, Rana, it really ties into what you were talking about before the break. Uh, this idea that we make sure. so many things elsewhere that is driven in large part by cost, right? Um, uh, it's expensive. 100%. It's, it, well, Martha, your, your question resonates with me on so many levels. First of all, my mother uh, was a school teacher for 40 years and, and noticed some of the same things that you're talking about. Um, there, there's a wonderful book. I'm going to tout somebody else's book. There's a British author named David Goodhart that did a book called Head, Heart, Hands. And his argument was that we need labor. We need jobs that use our heads, our hearts, and our hands, and that that's how you have a more balanced economy. I would completely agree with that. I mean, I have studied um, macroeconomics and the way companies and countries become more competitive for over three decades. And I can tell you that it's not by creating places where everybody is a software engineer or a banker or a CEO, as you were as you were saying. And I'll tell you how we got that idea. That was the bargain that was being made in the 1990s. That goes back to that conversation that I mentioned with Rich Trumka. Because policymakers at the time on both sides of the aisle really bought into this neoliberal trickle-down economics that we're going to send everything abroad, cheap stuff is going to get made abroad, 
Um, and we're all going to go up the services ladder and do things um, with money and data, and that's all going to be fine. The problem is that when you make things, or it's actually not a problem, if you're, if you're making things, you get better at making them. That's why the Chinese have become so competitive. We gave them our entire economic ecosystem, and they're now understandably very good and have gone up the ladder and are you know, making higher-end products and innovating. Germans, for example, by contrast, didn't let all that go. And so they have a much more balanced economy and higher wages for a rich country. My feeling is we need to get back to balance. And to your point about environmental um, issues, it's actually far more environmentally sound to make things closer to where consumers are, not only because we have higher labor standards here in the, or sorry, higher environmental standards in this country, but you shorten the supply chain. And when you shorten a supply chain, you're using less emissions, you're using less energy. Um, so there's a real win-win there. And companies know this. I mean, a lot of companies, interestingly, since the pandemic have been getting back to what's called vertical integration. It means owning your entire supply chain from the natural resources to the widgets to the final product. So you see companies like Tesla or Johnson & Johnson or even um, you know some big retailers like Walmart and Amazon are trying to own their own transportation um, uh, uh, hubs. So I, I think we're going in the opposite direction, but, but I totally agree with you. And I really, really wish that we hadn't gotten rid of vocational training mm. in our high school mm -hmm. because that's that's an important thing to bring back. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, Martha, really appreciate the call uh, and the great question. Let's go next to Melissa here in Metro Detroit. Melissa, welcome to the show. Uh, hi, Stephen. Um, hi. Hello to your guest. Um, right. So I was I was thinking about um, how short sighted our desired outcomes seem to be. You know, they're short term, just as um, kind of like, okay, let's get in there and get as much profit and power as quick as possible. And so I was wondering what your guest thinks. Um, do you see that shifting? You know, is that mm. is that part of it that perhaps the, yes. do you think the current administration or even possibly um, further out, maybe the Democratic Party is thinking that this needs to change and we need to be more um, long-term focused, you know, more far-sighted yes. as opposed to the short-sighted? Yeah. Yes, it, that is such a good question. And yeah, that's absolutely true. I'll, I'll give you a couple of kind of historical points that I think really fueled that short-termism that you're talking about. Um, my first book called Makers and Takers looked at why are CEOs, which, you know, a lot of them are really good people just, you know, trying to make the right decisions. Why are they making such bad decisions? Why are they, as you say, just taking the next quarter of profit without thinking about hey, maybe I should take some money right now and invest in my long-term future. Why is that not incentivized? Well, we, we made a couple changes. One, in the 1980s, in 1982, under the Reagan administration, we made share buybacks legal. Share buybacks are when a company goes in and buys up its own stock on the open market, which is it's kind of an artificial saccharine way to raise your share price. And so share buybacks are essentially how companies have been raising their stock prices over the last decade or so. They're at record levels. Now, when you're spending all your money buying up your stock, that means you're not spending your money on worker training or building a new factory or research and development. And so from the 1990s, 1980s onwards, you can see a line, like if you imagine a graph, a line going up, 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 showing share buybacks and a line going down, 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 showing the spending on real research and development. 
Um, that was really turbocharged in the 1990s, sadly, by the Democrats, um, because Silicon Valley lobbied. They wanted tax preferential treatment for um, share options. And that's when you started getting all this kind of magic money of, um, you know, we'll give you a thousand options to come work for us and someday they'll be worth $10 million. And you get into this kind of crazy world, financialized world of, of magic money. And people aren't really creating anything. They're not thinking about, you know, how do we grow an economy at a main street level for 10, 20, 50 years? That's something that is starting to change. Um, the Democrats are pushing for reductions and even um, illegality of share buybacks. Um, you're starting to see with the CHIPS Act, for example, a lot of people are pushing and saying, look, if, if companies are gonna get federal money, even if we need to make chips here, if they're gonna get federal money, they shouldn't be allowed to spend on these short-term things. And there's gonna be clawback provisions if the money goes to the wrong places. So I, I am encouraged that we're heading in a different direction. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, thanks very much for the call and the questions. Let's go next to Luke in Royal Oak. Luke, welcome to the show. Hey there, thank you for having me. Mm -hmm. um, I have the big question of, is there real competition in America when you basically have five companies that run everything out there? Yeah. Great question. <laughs> that, yeah, that's the $64 trillion question. <laughs> I love that one. Um, it, it, in an answer, no. No, I think there's not. And, um, you know, another thing that we've brewed up um, in this sort of Faustian bargain of, just go for cheap, push up share prices, that tends to encourage the big to get bigger. And it also encourages um, the monopolization of uh, various industries by, as you say, a handful of players. We see it in the tech world. We see it even in something like food systems. I mean, you remember when the pandemic hit and um, you have this weird phenomenon where, okay, suddenly all the restaurants are closed, everybody's going to the grocery store, and yet there are shortages of products and then meanwhile, farmers are having to throw out milk or, or slaughter, um, slaughter pork, you know, it, it, and it just doesn't make any sense. <clears throat> well, why is that? <clears throat> it's because you've got a handful of companies in two supply chains, one for restaurants, one for grocery stores that don't talk to one another. And I mean, this is exactly the kind of dysfunction that just doesn't work for people at a real economy level. I am encouraged again that the Biden administration has hired some very aggressive trust busters. Um, Lena Khan, who's now running the FTC, is mm -hmm. really trying to change things. And one of the things that I like is that they're throwing out the idea that price is the only metric that matters. You know, when you think about antitrust policy, it's always been as long as consumer prices are going down, there's no monopoly power. Well, think about Amazon. You know, it, <laughs> consumer prices may be going down, but that's because one company is owning the entire marketplace and all the data within it, and they can preference their products. And that may be driving down prices, but it's also driving a lot of people out of business, and that's just not healthy. So they're starting to think about power as a concept, not just price, and how does power get leveraged? Um, now, I will say that antitrust issues take a long time to resolve. So, you know, I'm not looking for this to make a big change in the next couple of years, maybe in five, 10 years. But boy, I, I totally agree with your question. And I'm, I'm thinking a lot about it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Luke, great question. And uh, really appreciate you calling with it. Let's go next to Jerry in Dearborn. Jerry, what's on your mind? Yeah, uh, I want to know uh, what's going to happen when, when the Chinese are, are going to try to dump their EVs into the American market. 
You know, uh, we have a 25%, Trump was able to impose a 25% tariff on imported cars, okay? Mm-hmm. But what the Chinese are doing, they're going around the world and buying bankrupt companies. Like, they bought Volvo, and, and uh, Volvo is currently uh, tr- trying to send in uh, an AV called the Polestar. It's really a Geely car. It's really a Chinese EV. Huh. And uh, I want to know what Biden's going to do to stop that. Hmm. Uh, tariffs seem to work well. I mean, for, for a long time. You feel like uh, the tariffs had work? No tariffs hmm. on, on imported cars, but we did have tariffs on, on pickups. That's why we, we are dominant in pickups. Hmm. Jerry, I, I love the call and I, I love that perspective. I'm not sure I agree with you about tariffs working, but uh, but Rana, talk about uh, this particular issue with China and their EVs uh, and what what should be you know, done. It's I, I I'll be honest and um, and I'd be curious, you know, your views on tariffs. But I've kind of come around to be honest. I mean, I know you know we were all kind of taught in economics 101: tariffs are bad; they create trade wars. Trade wars are a race to the bottom. But the the thing that I really struggle with, um, and this is kind of at the core of my book, is China is a fundamentally different economy than the U.S. And so I think that there was always a level of willful blindness when China was allowed into the WTO. You know, the idea was they're going to come in, they're going to um, eventually get richer, and then they're going to become more like us. That has never happened. Never in my experience, and I've been to China many times, has there been an assumption that there was going to be less state control of the economy in strategic areas. And so in that paradigm, my my concern is that WTO rules just stop working. When you have a free market economy trying to compete with a state-run economy that will always give preferential treatment and subsidies to its own players in ways that counter countervail WTO rules, I think you do have to start thinking about tariffs. And I was actually supportive of Lighthizer putting tariffs on, and I've been supportive of, um, of Catherine Tai using them too. Now, I would add that tariffs alone will not cut it. You've got to create competitiveness at home, which means investing in production, which the administration is trying to do, and investing in workers. You know, Stop seeing labor as a cost on the balance sheet, start seeing it as an asset, and start training people to move up that, um, that productivity ladder. And I think we could do better on that front. Mm. So we've only got a couple minutes left, uh, and I want to give you a chance, Rana, to dream a little bit. Uh, <laughs> oh, <wow. laughs> talk about where this is headed. I mean, you're saying that these are some substantive changes to to economic approach and and policy. Are we headed away from free market capitalism as we've known it for a really long time? And if so, what are we headed for? Well, that's a big question. Maybe I'll start by saying, I'm not sure we ever had free, and I would put it in quotation marks, uh, market capitalism. I'm not sure that that exists because to be honest, you know, the rules of capitalism are not sort of handed down on stone tablets in, in perfect form. Um, they're created uh, by vested interests. And the rules that we've had for the last half century have, in my view, been tilted more towards capital and, mm-hmm. and away from labor, more towards Wall Street, less towards Main Street. And they're now being crafted, recrafted, so that they are a little bit more tilted towards labor and 
communities. And I think that that is a good thing. I, you know, listen, I work for the biggest global business newspaper. I hold two passports. You know, I, I'm very pro globalization in a lot of ways. I also grew up in rural Indiana with a dad who man, ran manufacturing businesses. And I know that you have to work, things have to work at both a local level and a global level or else economies break down and stop working and you get extremely populist partisan politics. And that is where we are right now. We have to have a system that is going to enrich local communities, be they, be they you know, wherever they are, rather than a handful of global companies um, uh, and a handful of extremely wealthy people. And I think that the trends are moving in that direction. So I am hopeful. Yeah. Okay. Rana Ferrar was really great to have you here for this conversation and congratulations on the book. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Okay, that is gonna do it for us today. Don't forget to include WDET in your considerations here on Giving Tuesday. Great shows and great conversations like the one we just had on Detroit Today are only possible because of you. Come come back tomorrow when we're gonna talk about why Michigan's childbirth rate continues to decline and what that means for state residents. Talk again tomorrow.